Hello and welcome to Right Wing Dharma Squads episode 36. I'm your host for this week, Aura Taxonomist, and I'm joined here as always by my good friend Yamnaya Mindset. You want to say hello, buddy? How's everyone doing today? And this week we have a very special guest. Um, he is the proprietor of a blog called On Tradition, which you can find at the website uh, esoterictraditionalism.wordpress.com. Uh, you may know him by his previous Twitter handle, Anarchic Evilist. Uh, he is Jan Demandschneider. Jan, hello. Hello. Good evening. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Um, so for our listeners, what we're going to do today is one of our uh, famous relaxed fit, cozy, comfy episodes. And the topic, the general overall topic for today is um, capital T tradition or traditionalism and perennialism. Um, the similarities or the conflicts perhaps between those, and also some of the contents of Jan's uh, excellent blog. And by the way, did I get the URL right there when I announced it? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it is esoteric, traditionalism.wordpress.com. Yeah, great. And I really recommend to our listeners um, that they go and check it out. It's a very uh, well-organized um, and pretty to look at blog, and the content is absolutely outstanding. Um, and so if you're listening along, you can browse that as we're talking or do it later at your own leisure. Um, so we're going to um, ask Jan about some of uh, his articles there and some of his ideas. Um, but we're also just going to take a broader perspective and um, uh, address those topics I just mentioned. But before I go any further, what I'd like to do is just um, give Jan a chance to um, introduce himself and uh, uh, give us just a little bit of his background. So Jan, maybe uh, you can tell our listeners um, uh, about yourself, um, your own background and your own, uh, and also just your intellectual background, I guess I would like to ask, and your spiritual background. Thank you, thank you. Uh, well, I go now these days by the pseudonym uh, Jan the Mountsnyder. Uh, I was uh, for a long time known as uh, anarchic evolist, uh, in the meantime, in the middle between the between these names, there have been many, many other names. Uh, I run a blog for about I've run it for over a year now, uh, but I've only begun seriously posting for about half a year. Um, right now, I'm a university student uh, studying uh, philosophy and economics. Um, my intellectual background has mostly uh, been formed uh, by uh, by reading uh, Evola and uh, Guénon. Uh, it's really when I was uh, a few years ago, I think it was like 16, 17, I began reading these uh, these books uh, by Evola, like uh, the, the classics, Revolt Against the Modern World, and uh, you know all that uh, all that shit. Um, and that really formed me, that, that led me to uh, reading more classical works, reading medieval works, reading uh, the Greek, the Romans, and also definitely into the, the Eastern traditions, uh, uh, Hindu works, Buddhist works, Taoist works. And uh, since then I've been trying to, uh, to study really all these, these traditions. Uh, in my personal life I am a Catholic, so uh, in my blog, I, I write mostly from a, from a Catholic perspective. But you know, it, it's been been 
informed a lot by uh, by traditionalism. So you'll find by accident uh, uh, also some references to uh, to other traditions and the like. And uh, yeah, I think that's it. Very good. And um, could I uh, ask you? And again, as always, and any of these questions, of course, always feel free to just <laughs> not answer if you don't feel like it. But how would you describe your political perspective? I think I'm uh, politically speaking. Uh, I don't know. I think I'm an uh, I'm apolitical in the sense of uh, that also Evola uh, describes it as an uh, apolitia. Uh, it's Greek for uh, apolitical. It's not in the sense of uh, oh, I'm not political. I uh, I'm a centrist. It's more in, uh, in the sense of an inner detachment from politics. Like I don't care who wins an election. I don't care what kind of policies are enacted because it doesn't really affect my uh, spiritual or religious uh, works. Uh, and I, I think it, it's 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 also too far gone, in the sense I'm an uh, extreme right wing uh, extremist, radicalist. I think yeah, there is no uh, there is no saving uh, parliamentary democracy. Uh, I don't care if the Republicans or uh, Democrats uh, win, or even in my country. I don't care which party wins. The only uh, no, I, I I still try to follow it a little bit, and I think oh this may be interesting, but yeah, I think I'm mostly uh, detached from politics. Yeah, fair, totally fair. I I think um, I, we're of a like mind here, more or less, on this show. Um, may I ask you? Did were you say like as a teenager? Were you sort of more normy? Like you know, did you? Like uh, I'm from the United States, and uh, I when I was like 14 or whatever, and I first vaguely became aware of political parties and who the president is and everything. Um, I you know I I thought that uh, because of what my mom taught me, you know, that the Democrats were like the good guys and the Republicans were bad guys. And you know, obviously, as I got older and started thinking for myself, um, <laughs> my views on that changed significantly. But did you were you at one point sort of a you know, like a, a leftist or a center rightist or that kind of thing. Well, I, I had a face uh, like just before I started reading Ifola, uh, where I was, uh, where I really liked Austrian economics. Right. I was reading like uh, what's it called, like uh, Ludwig von Mises. Yeah, and, von Mises. Uh, 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 Hans Hermann Hoppe. Sure. Oh uh, yes. And I was like, oh, yes, this this is the truth. Like, people don't know. <laughs> As a former libertarian, I'm very sympathetic to that. Yeah, that's so funny. You know, it's you, the most interesting conversations uh, you have uh, are often with either former, like, like hardcore Marxists. I don't mean like shit libs. I mean like the, yeah, you know, yeah. like the, or like, uh, you know, like hardcore libertarians, you know, physical punishment. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, I, I'm not surprised. It, it is so funny to me though, to, to find, because I, any long time listeners of this show will know that like in my uh, like early, late teens or whatever, I was like, a, like I, I was like a, hard carrying fucking marxist like i really thought i was like you know workers revolution and all this shit like uh please no bully 
listeners and commenters, uh, I did outgrow that. But um, I, I think it sort of speaks to a passion about like, you know, like very uh, serious ideas. You know, you can you can laugh at the Austrians or the Marxists all you want. And I intend to laugh at them because they're wrong <laughs> about a great deal uh, of many things. But the, the one thing is you can't accuse them of is being like, you know, like milk toast, uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm studying economics at university uh, right now. So, uh, you know, they, the only thing they speak of is like the neoliberal, uh, or neoclassical, they call it form of economics. And it's so, I don't know, it's so boring. It's so, uh, so mathematical. It's, it's really that this economic shift in the like post world war two, they, they started using so much, did they just, uh, started exclusively using math and statistics and uh, that kind of thing to describe economics. And I, I think it's so poor. It's it's so uh, it's so empty. It doesn't even it, it it it's useless. I think. Well, you know, I mean, it's economics, but then it seems like that trend towards mathematics and statistics. I mean, if you look at the sciences, it went from actually being descriptive to just a bunch of statistical distributions of things that appear to be different. So it's it's not just economics. I think that that's a trend that can be observed yeah. broadly in a whole lot of other fields. True. Even uh, Guinon in his uh, work, uh, Reign of Quantity, yes. he also writes about it, you know? He says it's, just, it's, uh, it's also called Reign of Quantity. Eh? The quantity, it's the, the, the world starts to get dominated, reigned over by quantity, you know, everything, <laughs> is reduced to quantity and uh, in this way uh, statistics and math start to dominate in all uh, fields of human knowledge i, so, I love that book uh, there's there like five pages of in one chapter in reign of quantity where he talks about how money went from being like physical gold to paper that represented gold and then he predicts in the future it's just going to be lists of numbers and this was yeah. written in like the 1920s and now we see uh, the reign of. Do you mean uh, crisis of the modern world or reign of quantity? That's in reign of quantity. I think it's like 1940s, but either way, I mean, he basically predicted that most money was going to become computerized, which it is now. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I think he he also uh, quite accurately uh, predicted uh, at least the foundations of the internet. You know, the virtual, which I have also tried to write about. Uh, I've tried to call psychic Platonism. Yes. Uh, of course, he, he doesn't say it in a sense of uh, literally describing the internet, but he, he's speaking about you know the the, the psychic domain uh, entering into the the world. You know, it says the reign of quantity is over in a sense. You know, it's not it's not long it's no longer quantity or matter at the corporeal that is uh, dominant. But it's it's becoming the virtual, the digital, uh, which is basically it's it's psychic. It's not corporeal. It's not of the body, and I think he he also predicted it in a sense. So this is a great uh, transition. So I I would like to talk about Genon um, in general, and also specifically the reign of quantity, um, because I, I I think it's absolutely key um, to understanding what's going on. Uh, in the world in general today, and um, I loved uh, your I love your concept of psychic Platonism, and um, I 
in a moment, um, if you will, I, I'd like to uh, sort of pick your brain on that particular concept um, because I found it very enlightening. But I don't want to put you on the spot too much, Jan, but would you mind for our listeners sort of just giving a, you know, the 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 broad overview of who Genon was and um, what, what you find important about his work? Sure, sure. I'll, uh, I'll try my best. I think, uh, you know, René Guénon was, I think, a very interesting figure. Uh, you know, uh, I also like, I always like to uh, cite uh, Carl Schmidt, who said he found René Guénon the most interesting person of their time. Um, he was born in France in a Catholic uh, family. And from a young age, he uh, he was he was raised Catholic, and uh, you know went to a, had a good education. I think he was a pretty sickly child, so he uh, spent a lot of time you know reading, studying, uh, being educated. When he went to study, he uh, he went through all these uh, uh, what what we'd call secret societies or uh, what he'd call. Uh, in initiatic lineages like the Freemasons or you know paramasonic uh, organizations, uh, he was uh, also in that time initiated into uh, a Sufi order. Uh, so he, he very much uh, studied uh, the esoteric part of uh, Catholic uh, Catholicism. Also, he worked with all kinds of. Uh, organizations, uh, uh, for example, the the Feast of Christ the King uh, was also uh, instated in that time with by an organization which uh, Grunon was also affiliated with. Uh, he wrote a lot for uh, this uh, Catholic uh, journal, uh, what's called uh, Reckonabit. He shall reign. Uh, he worked with Chabonot uh, de Lassay. He was a French uh, symbolist in the sense he, he was a uh, collector and interpreter of symbols. So basically, if, until 1930, he was well, working to, in a sense, restore uh, the Catholic esotericism. And he tried to, uh, as it were, search for a, a European Catholic solution against modernity uh, i think his his wife died at a certain point and in i think 1930 he moved to egypt uh, to uh, Cairo, the the capital of egypt where he went to live uh, with a new wife and he had a few children and he just lived there basically anonym uh, anonymously uh, I think there's a story that his uh, his uh, neighbor was a big fan of his work, uh, but didn't know he was going on. You know, <laughs> really? <laughs> he, yeah, he went by a different name. I think it's uh, some Arabic name. <laughs> Amazing. And, was uh, his wife uh, Egyptian, or do you do you know? Yeah, his, his wife was Egyptian. S yeah. Second wife. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah I yeah. think someone found his daughter posting boomer memes on Facebook. No. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Yeah, his children are still alive and and well. I think they're not. Okay. Uh, I, I don't think they're leading a 
uh, traditionist revolution. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently not. Holy shit, I didn't know that. That's uh, that's depressing. Oh, sorry. Please continue. Well, yeah, I think he, he just lived like as an uh, a Sufi initiate in Cairo, uh, basically anonymously until and he kept writing and sending letters, uh, uh, having conversations over. Uh, by letter with all kinds of people in Europe still. Um, but yeah, aside from that, he just lived there and uh, and died died there at some point. His books had a very profound influence, though, on a, on a great number of um, very interesting people, like the aforementioned uh, Julius Evola. Am I correct? Yes, definitely, definitely. Uh, Evola uh, is uh, is heavily influenced by uh, by Guénon. He's, uh, they also had, uh, they also um, conversed by letter and uh, yeah. Did they ever meet? I know they corresponded. I'm wondering if they ever. Uh, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't yeah, I don't think, think so either. Yeah, I've never heard of their meeting, but I know that they they wrote letters and read each other's books and things. Well, it's quite funny. Uh, Gunon kind of didn't like Evola. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I don't think anybody really liked it all up. But anyway, I think actually Nasser met him in person before. Nasser really mm -hmm. a few years before he died. Oh, Get on. That could be uh, no, no, Evola. Oh, well, that's interesting. Yeah, I think I think that's 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 pretty much summarizes uh, Gunan's life. Yeah. So. Um, for our listeners, when I um, it was uh, Yamnaya Mindset's idea to contact uh, Jan uh, for this episode, and I um, was totally in favor of it um, because I'm following him on Twitter and I've um, I've poked in his blog and a few times. But when I contacted Jan, I said, you know, would you want to be on the show? He said, sure, that sounds good. What are we going to talk about? And um, you know, I said, oh, you know, traditionalism, perennialism, uh, blah blah blah, and uh, Jan, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, uh, you believe you responded something along the lines of, yes, the, the, those aren't the same thing, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, I guess what I'd like to do right now is bridge that, um, that gap between, because Genon is associated with this perennial philosophy um, school, and uh, we can already tell from his life story that he was not the type of person who's like, I am now founding a school of philosophy. You will all call yourselves perennialists and you will read the following books. Like that's not at all the kind of person he was. Nevertheless, uh, today in, in the current year, um, that that's sort of the way it's looked at is, is that, uh, that, that the perennialists are a certain group of people and uh, that Genon is sort of the most form the foremost one among them along with uh, guys like Kumaraswamy and uh, Shuan and uh, Evola. So I guess um, you, you don't have to agree with that or dispute it, but what I'd like to just ask you is where does this um, this conflict or, or this tension between those two ideas come from um, and, and how do you view it? Yeah, I, I think uh, it's one of the things that uh, annoys me a bit uh, uh, the difference, uh, the like people using traditionalism and perennialism uh, interchangeably. Uh, traditionalism is really uh, the if if we if I speak of traditionalism, I mean like writers such as Kunon, Kumaraswamy, Evola, etc. Uh, but a lot of people, when they speak of perennialism 
of when I speak of Peronism, I, I think of people such as uh, Aldous Huxley, uh, people such as uh, like the, the entire New Age movement uh, or the uh, Theosophical Society. I think that the prime difference is that traditionalism is uh, esotericism plus anti-modernism. And I think perennialism is uh, exotericism plus pro-modernism. Uh, a lot of perennialists speak of uh, a evolution. Uh, the human race will evolve into a spiritually uh, higher placed uh, form. Uh, the, the races will unite and uh, this new religion uh, where we erase all the differences uh, will reign and that's amazing. While traditionalists say they speak of uh, devolution and they say once uh, in the golden age there was one tradition one truth but throughout time it has fragmentized it has devolved into all kinds of various forms and modernity is uh, precisely the negation or elimination of tradition uh, so i think they're they're actually diametrically opposed the two <laughs> So does the confusion for people come from the fact that both sides seemed to, um, not sides, but both uh, uh, schools, if you will, uh, liked to draw upon all the different major world religions? That, that's why people get them confused? Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, I think traditionalism is best understood as a, a hermeneutic, as a way of interpreting uh, the past and uh, traditions uh, as it were a way to interpret everything that is not modern mm -hmm. uh, and you could say the same for perennialism uh, it's also a way to try to interpret uh, all these traditions in a in a in a single hermeneutic uh, but the way the these uh, these interpretations differ is 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 enormous. Uh, as I said, the one is very modern, the other very anti-modern. Anti uh, the one is uh, more pointed towards the esoteric or inner uh, initiatic part of traditions. The other is very focused on the exoteric part, like uh, practice or uh, dogma, uh, you know, ethical rules. Uh, they say like, oh. Well, in Buddhism, you have to be compassionate, and in Christianity, you have to be compassionate. Wow, they are the same, you know? Right. And that's an, actually another interesting point, is when you talk about, like, the primary difference being that the perennialists view history in almost Whiggish terms of, like, this kind of progress upwards. Mm -hmm. Whereas the traditional view, and I think this is actually something that's pretty consistent, this is a pretty consistent theme through every major world religion, is this idea of a decline from a golden age. I mean, or, Hinduism, at least a, or at least a cycle, and we're currently within a decline of a cycle. Yes, like Hinduism, I mean, obviously the Kali Yuga is pretty much like the defining term that everyone on our side of Twitter seems to be using to describe our current era. But even within yeah. Buddhism, there's the idea of the Dharma ending age or this degenerative time when the number of people is increasing, but of decreasing quality. And of course, I mean, Christianity and Islam both have the idea of history as being this kind of descent from the initial paradisical creation towards this last final judgment. 
Indeed, indeed. So, I mean, this is like the kind of defining characteristic of every major religion is that we used to live in this kind of golden age and now we're increasingly moving away from that. So everything that, so basically, I mean, the whole way you interpret history from either perspective changes. Either you look at like every change from the past as being a kind of a mistake or you see everything as intrinsically, a be, as intrinsically an improvement because you're evolving on it. And that's that really. I mean, that's a it's such a fundamental difference in worldview. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Uh, which is also why I think that the traditionalist uh, way of interpreting is is vastly superior, uh, more true than the perennialist way of interpreting. I, I agree with you guys. I would just point out what I said as an interjection a moment ago, YM, which is that it's not so much that these um, major world systems describe a decline it's that they describe a cycle and that we're currently within a declining stage of the cycle um that's that's all that that that's the only distinction i would right i mean i i was i was just using the term um because we're no. in a, it's a, it's kind of like whether we're within a particular stage of a cycle i mean the reason i wasn't very um i wasn't going to use like the cyclical thing is that i guess from some views, I guess, some views of Islam and most views of Christianity, um, the biggest difference is it's not really a cyclical view of history. Right. It is, it is, it is sort of more of an arrow of history in, the, in Islam and Christianity, for sure. Yeah. Uh, but from an Indian religious perspective, it's absolutely 100% cyclical, and we're in the declining stage of a cycle. Yeah, and for the Greeks and Romans, too. And, um, and also, like it's it's also just a good it's a good shorthand for talking about the difference between what Jan is talking about with the perennialists and everything, or or you you said it very well the Wiggish uh, view of like a spiritual history. If you, I mean, the Whigs view political history and economic yeah, history the same way. Say again, Jan. Sorry. It's uh, you know, it's not it's not even just Whiggish. It's just uh, the progressive idea that there is a progression or evolution at yeah. all. Right. Like it's actually interesting. If you view history as a cycle, you basically can't have a Whiggish view of history. It's 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 literally impossible to to um, compatibilize the two. Yeah, definitely. And and uh, you know what you what what you were talking about. Uh, you know the difference between the Abrahamic religions and the Eastern traditions, or the the pagan pre-Christian, or at least non-Abrahamic traditions. Uh, you know most pagan, it's an imperfect word, but I'll use it. Traditions have a more direct cyclical view. You know, they describe the ages uh, very clearly and extensively. But the Abrahamic traditions mostly focus on what I would call just one cycle. You know, they say, okay, in the beginning of time, uh, it was a, a golden age, a perfect world uh, created by God. Everything was good and well until you know uh, the fall and then it becomes progressively worse and then you get the reign of the antichrist and at the end of time everything will be reconstituted you know the heavenly jerusalem who once more appear on earth uh, will descend down on earth and then the original uh, primordial state is uh, restored so it's it's it, and then it's it's that cycle you know it says in the beginning it was perfect then it declines until the end, and then it's the same. Then it's again uh, the primordial state. 
Yeah, I think Ganon uses the, um, he talks about like the cycle between terrestrial paradise on one hand and heavenly Jerusalem on the other. I think that's the metaphor he used in Reign of Quantity. Um, yes, yes. The thing about it, though, is as like cyclical versus linear is, is at least some interpretations I've come across in Islam. That might, maybe they'll say that this particular um, history that we're living in right now is linear, but they've always left the question of previous creations as something open, which is why I'm, I'm not really I'm sure whether to say that Islam's view of history is like 100% absolutely linear as well. Well, so. there, there's all, uh, I've also uh, heard, you know, or seen some uh, Sufi texts that speak about, you know, there being uh, hundreds or millions of worlds prior or after this one, you know. Uh, but it's, it's mostly seen as irrelevant. Uh, it's much it's seen as it's it's not very important uh, what was before or after this world it's not it's not a concern for religion because religion is 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 exclusively uh it's it's exclusively concerned with gaining uh of of saving uh, saving your life your soul it's it's really the same word life and soul eh? yes. for for this next world for the world to come uh, as the Jews call it, uh, for the world to come, uh, and what happens after or before that, it's it's not something that falls under its domain. It's not something with which it is concerned at all. Hmm. Let's um, let's switch gears a little bit because um, I really want to address this uh, psychic Platonism because um, I'll I'll let Jan do most of the talking because it's his concept, but um, I'll just say what my uh, feeling was when I came across it on his blog um, is that this is something I think very many people, at least uh, who are sympathetic to this podcast, the kind of people who might be listening to it, very many people have already intuited uh, this phenomenon. And and some people talk about it uh, and we sort of try to describe the reason we find it so off-putting and wrong. Um, but it's, it, we, I think in modern sort of mainstream discourse, we lack the terms to talk about it accurately. And so people end up um, sort of waving their hands around and just getting frustrated because they can't exactly describe why it feels so wrong uh, when they encounter this kind of psychic Platonism. And uh, Jan uses the very, well, it used to be extreme, I guess it's becoming more commonplace, but the, the very outlandish uh, example of like transgenderism and transsexualism or whatever. Um, but he also very astutely points out that this, this phenomenon is not just limited to those sort of more obvious um, manifestations, that, that it could be said to represent the, the whole way that social media works and everything. And um, I guess I'm talking about the concept without defining it first, but the reason I'm doing that is because Jan, I think before we even get into this idea of psychic Platonism, it, again, if I'm not putting you on the spot too much, um, we have to sort of get into some Platonic and also, you know, Christian through Neoplatonism ideas of uh, just for clarity's sake, because a lot of people who haven't studied philosophy, these uh, these concepts get confused. The difference between like the soul, the psyche, and the body. Um, 
just just so that we can explain your psychic Platonism idea, um, because I, I, as I think you know, at least in the Anglophone world, a lot of people think of the psyche or the ego as like the innermost self, and I, yes, I'm, yes. I'm sure I'm sure that you you can explain to us why that's not exactly the case. So I hope I'm not putting on the spot, but could you speak to that that question? Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best. I'll do my best. Um, in the Platonic or even Christian tradition, uh, or at least the more esoteric, hermetic, alchemical tradition, uh, it is very common to speak of uh, man being a tripartite being uh, that is uh, consisting of body, uh, soul, and spirit. Uh, the alchemists call this, uh, call the body, they call salt. Uh, the soul they call sulfur, and the spirits they call mercury. Uh, in Greek, uh, can I ask you? I'm sorry. Is it uh, you said the soul is um, silver or sulfur? Sulfur, sulfur, sulfur. Got it. Thank you. Please continue. Uh, mercury is also called quicksilver. Uh, anyway, uh, in in the Latin terms for this for this uh, tripartite tripartite constitution are um corpus uh, body from uh, you know corporeal uh anima uh, from animal uh, pertaining to the soul uh it's very interesting animal uh until i think the 13th century used to mean exclusively pertaining to the soul and from then on it started also uh, to refer to like animals like dogs beasts and, uh, yeah beasts, you know yeah. I think it's a very interesting shift. Uh, yeah, because now animal like is associated. You know, when you say the man's animal side is associated with this more like corporeal, bestial side. Well, not exactly, because you could say like desire and and lust resides in precisely the the anima, the soul. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, and then the the spirit is called uh, spiritus, or spiritus by uh, by the Latins. The Greek terms are uh, soma for body psyche for soul you know from which you derive the word psychic and uh pneuma uh, for spirit and um, this tripartite uh, constitution of man has been uh, very common very widespread uh, in the western traditions but i think also in the eastern traditions uh, and it said basically, well, we all know what the body is. It's the senses, it's it's the corporeal, it's what uh, the world we perceive with uh, our five senses. We also all know what the soul is, what the psyche is. It's uh, our feelings, desires, thoughts. Uh, it's basically everything that we perceive, every phenomenon which is not corporeal. Uh, then the spirit is is um, is always a bit more a bit more complicated uh, because it's not something we perceive um, because the the terms in Greek it's it's called uh, nous intellect uh, what the Latins call it intellectus uh, from which you derive intellect uh, is very uh, was also used interchangeably with uh, pneuma. Uh, so when we say with the with, with uh, the body and the soul, we perceive the phenomenal world. 
with the spirit, we perceive the noumenal world uh, deriving from nous intellect. And when we get home, medieval philosophy and also the Aristotelian and Platonic philosophy saying that the angels or planets are intelligences. Uh, so in this sense, the entire spiritual world is also an intellectual world. Uh, in this sense, spirit and intellect are identical. But you know, when speaking of this movie, we must be very careful to make the difference between reason, which is in the psyche, which is in the soul, and intellect, which is in the spirit. Uh, it's it's for, for example what Plato calls reason often uh, dia noia. It's uh, dia plus nous. It's like it's it's the it's a movement from nous. It's it's a descent. Uh, between it's it's like a going down the, the 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 it's the news descending into the realm of the psyche to formulate uh, doctrine or language or, or words sentences um and and so these these things are very different um so when we speak about psychic platonism it's to dis to distinguish it from you know normal spiritual uh, platonism uh, when we speak about ideas of forms um, in a uh, capital F sense, uh, we mean the real platonic forms, uh, which are spiritual, intellectual. But when we speak about psychic Platonism, it's about these forms or ideas uh, with a lower F. Uh, so it means those resisting in the soul or in the psychic domain, in the mind. Uh, so I think that's that's the difference. Okay. Yeah. No, that's excellent. That's very good. So when we talk about uh, psychic Platonism, and I, I hate to give our people, you know, too much too much prologue to get to the the meat of what you're talking about in there, but I think we also have to talk about. Uh, you also have to explain what you mean by uh, substantial forms and uh, accidental forms, um, and uh, because because this is where the rubber really hits the road. And anybody who's studied like uh, Plato a little bit in high school or maybe your introductory. Uh, philosophy class, uh, first year of college, that kind of thing. Um, th these, these, you know, Plato's idea of the forms is relatively well known, I think, among people who are interested in these kinds of things. But if you could sort of give the the short version of of what a form is, then we can talk about like this this idea of uh, psychic Platonism because I, I I find it fascinating. I'll do my best. I'll do my best. Um, forms. Uh, basically refers to qualities, uh, the things that make something what it is. Uh, so a certain uh, object or subject, a certain thing has certain qualities, and the uh, the collection, the 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 sum of all those qualities is what we call the form of a thing. And uh, yeah, I think that's a form. And and play. And when we speak about spiritual forms, uh, it means those you know unmanifested intellectual forms uh, subsisting in uh, the world. In and in medieval philosophy, we say that uh, you know the the word of God, Christ, is uh, the place where these um, ideas or forms subsist. Um, but yeah, basically, uh, forms just just refers to a certain quality. So, um, yeah, excellent, excellent. So, 
for if uh, I'm going to do a little summary now for our listeners and uh, Jan, you can correct me later if I get this wildly wrong. But so to to recap for people to use the Greek terms um, of soma, psyche, and pneuma. Um, remember, soma is the body, psyche is um, well, pneuma is the spirit, and psyche is um, everything that's personal uh, but that is not corporeal. Is that a good way to put it, Jan? Yeah, if, uh, all non-corporeal corporeal phenomena. Yeah. Um, so in a Platonic idea, there, there, there is such a thing as, um, you know, to use the slang, like a, a, a Platonic form, a Platonic ideal. Um, you know, a lot of the um, examples that get tossed around are like the Platonic ideal of a horse. Now, no single individual horse is ever going to embody complete and total horsiness but it is an instantiation of, um, of the form of a horse, right? And a horse can be a more or less perfect horse um, depending on like how, how ideally horsey it is, <laughs> if you will. Um, and it sounds kind of silly when I put it that way, but this, this, these think, the, thinking that way has a very profound implication about how you look at yourself and your place in the world and uh, the journey of your own soul, your, the journey of your own spirit, in fact, um, in life. What's interesting about your idea of psychic Platonism is that, um, and I'm going to paraphrase here, and then I'll invite you to expound upon it, is that let's take the example of the transgender or transsexual. I don't even know what term to use, um, tranny. Um, the they also have a sort of platonic ideal in their head, but it doesn't descend from uh, the spiritual world. It doesn't descend from the pneuma. It, it descends from the psyche. It descends from their own ideas about who they are and what they're going to be. So that they can have uh, essentially the spirit of a man and the body of a man, uh, but they've convinced themselves through very convoluted ways and, and from the you know outside influences um, that somehow that they're a woman and that there's no and that that womanhood that they have that's purely a psychic idea that they have in their head it, it has no bearing on either spiritual reality or physical reality um, that that has a sort of platonic reality to them that that is the the ultimate truth of things and that anybody who points to the soma to the corpus to the body and says, uh, hello, idiot, you are a man, you have a penis, like stop LARPing, right? Uh, that person doesn't understand the deepness of their psychic Platonism. On the other hand, somebody who wants to point out in a sort of more traditionalist or, or just sort of, you know, kind of old school way and says, uh, yeah, you know, the, all these things that you're feeling, these are all descended from something even greater than just your body and your psyche, right? Uh, and you're you're violating them. Those people, these these trannies or whatever, would want to say something like, "Oh, well, that stuff doesn't exist, or that's all old superstition, or whatever." And so they've reified uh, their delusions, uh, but in an interesting way, they've reified it in the psyche as opposed to uh, trying to look to the world of forms beyond. Um, I'm sure you have a better way of putting it, but do you, do you do you think I've sort of summed it up? Well, uh, I'll let YM speak, and then then. Then Jan, maybe you can respond. What I actually am trying to trying to figure out here is what's the difference or distinction you would make between your idea of psychic Platonism specifically and like a more broad idea of like conceptualism in general. Um, 
Well, what, what do you mean? Like, um, conceptualism. Like the idea that like there's no such thing as I mean, is are you trying to say that like um, rather than suggest that there's like a real universal that psychic Platonism is just arguing that the so-called uh, universals only exist conceptually, or is it? Well, I, it's it's definitely a, a, a prerequisite uh, for it. So you have to be a conceptualist or nominalist. A, okay, so it's a specific a subtype. Of yeah, it's it's more a, it's like uh, an extremist nominalism. Uh, because you, you could say like uh, uh, theoretically you could theoretically deny like spiritual forms but still you know live in accordance with with the body uh, you could be a pure materialist uh, or corporealist uh, you know you deny all the uh, spiritual forms or intellectual forms uh, but that doesn't mean like psychic platonism is uh, also a denial of this corporeal domain so it's it's a it's the denial both of the spiritual and the corporeal while a pure materialist uh, does not deny the corporeal he does say that's the only real thing you know that's that makes sense it, you know we on this um this show on right-wing dharma squads we've addressed um psychology uh you know sort of as it descends from freud um kind of at length before. And to me, it seems like these kinds of ideas are born out of that, uh, if you want to call it tradition, um, out, of, out of that school of thought um, that what exists in the mind, but only at the only at the level of the psyche, right? Not at the level of, of the spirit or the intellect, right? That that is the real reality. And that, um, that the body, um, either conforms or doesn't conform to the true reality which is in the psyche um and then the idea of the spiritus like that just completely doesn't exist to these people do, do you think i'm onto something there Jan? is am i am i hitting on the right the right topics you said like uh, freud and and the likes right yeah freud and like you know and later on lacan and everything but you, you don't even yeah, have to address yeah, no, I, 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 uh, I definitely agree uh, I, you know, to, to come back to uh, Guenon, he also writes extensively uh, in, uh, I think, Reign of Quantity about these uh, psycho psychologists. He says, like, uh, he even uh, speculates about how they could be, uh, you know, a counter-initiation, he calls it. Uh, that they're like, pu like pure evil, like saints of Satan, you know, to use an Islamic expression. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely agree. I definitely agree. It's 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 a movement from the from the corporeal to the to the psychic, which is like uh, it's like the dissolution of the corporeal uh, into the psychic or in, into the virtual. Uh, yeah, th that was definitely uh, helped by these twentieth-century uh, uh, psychologists. So let's talk a little bit more about the last thing you said there, because I think that um, the example of uh, transsexuals is um, a pretty easy one to grasp because the the contrast between what they claim or think that they are versus what they really are is, is so obvious to people. Um, but you you push a little bit further in your um, in several of your um, essays, but specifically in the one addressing psychic Platonism. And also, I've noticed in some of your tweets too. You you, you talk about how social media and uh, the digital world in general is also a uh, an instantiation of this kind of psychic Platonism. Um, how is that? Well, 
do you mind if if I uh, if I tell you how I came up how the how the concept came to me? Please do. Well, I was actually reading uh, the story "God Shaped Hole" by Zora uh, H. P. Lovecraft. You know him? Yeah, yeah, that's a uh, really good. Um, people should. Uh, have you read the the story? I have. Yeah. I, I was reading that, and I'm. Uh, it was while I was reading it that I that I came up with the concept. Uh, because he also he also writes about uh, yeah this digital virtual uh, like a future where the virtual reality is is basically taken over uh, the the world uh, basically everything people do is dominated completely uh, uh, totally uh, taken over by the virtual. By the uh, and um, I was thinking, yeah, maybe this uh, this identification of the virtual with the psychic, with the because it's it's not something corporeal, right? The internet is not something that has a, a body. You know, you can say, of course, it uh, it manifests itself in computers or uh, you know audio, video, uh, but in itself, it is not something that is uh, a body it, it's basically uh, ones and zeros you know it's pure information uh, and also i think in the minds of people uh, like internet has become itself a social domain uh, people see a certain number their followers or following or view counts or whatever and derive an entire social context from it uh, also, with on Twitter, you know, people have mutuals. Uh, they call other accounts friends, or uh, you know, things like that. Uh, it, it has become uh, it has become the social domain. It's also called social media. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, social media is definitely uh, an example of. Uh, Psychic Platonism—it's—it's it's, it's basically a domain, a psychic domain, which which takes over uh, and eliminates, thereby dissolves in a way uh, all kinds of corporeal contexts. And it's actually—I mean, someone once—it's been pointed out a few times before this interesting phenomenon where transsexuals will have like anime girl avatars as like this idealized yeah. form. <laughs> I mean, anime is, is also uh, <laughs> an obvious example of feminism. Uh, I mean, recently, um, maybe you've seen it. This uh, like anime cam girl. Was, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I haven't seen this yet. It's 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 also a perfect example of uh, you know how uh, sex or uh, sexual relations, which is in essence something extremely material, extremely corporeal, has also become. Uh, digital, virtual, you know, you have, or you're already headed with uh, online pornography. Yes. And, uh, and now with camera girls and uh, even virtual cameras, it's becoming ever more, uh, more digital. I mean, so I, I mean, you could say psychic platonism, I guess some would say hyper reality to some extent there as well. Yes, but... Definitely. definitely yeah. Jan, you, you said, um, you know, it's dissolving the, um, the corporeal into the the psychic slash digital and i totally agree um but i'm assuming you'd also agree if i said it's also dissolving the spiritual 
into the psychic slash digital. And the spiritual is, uh, you know, on the one hand, the spiritual. Well, it cannot be dissolved in one sense, but you know, but but the that the the human access to it can certainly be you know deteriorated yeah. or ruined or wrecked. You know, it's um, you can say a pure materialist uh, has closed himself off from any spiritual influence from above, uh, but also from and as it were below, he is also free from every psychic influence. Because he's a pure materialist, he, he doesn't deal in these influences. When you get these uh, psychic platonists, they're still, as it were, uh, protected or, or uh, walled off uh, from the spiritual upper domain. But as it were, the lower wall, they have breached it, they've uh, eliminated it. So now all kinds of psychic influences are able to enter uh the corporeal domain uh, because they are no longer materialists uh, so i think that's what's happening now you could say on the one end you know the the psychic is entering into the corporeal but also what you could say is the corporeal is entering into the psychic is being dissolved into the psychic okay i know that ganon wrote a lot and again some of his texts about the idea of like eventually there's going to be this creation of a counter initiation do you think that psychic platonism plays some role in that where like by walling off themselves from higher influences, but opening themselves up to the lower ones, that this is actually going to be the basis of that counter-initiation, or? Well, he, he, uh, he also wrote about the psychologists, you know, Freud, Jung, he, uh, he said they were uh, already uh, a counter-initiation. Who said that? Ganon said that about Jung, not just Freud? Yeah, I think, uh, Ma, I mean, he, he, doesn't, I don't, he doesn't like to name names. Can I ask you your opinion on Jung? Because I read in one of your articles you were talking about. Um, I don't have it pulled up in front of me. Um, about uh, oh yes, um, people interpreting dreams without reference to ancient um, symbology, right? Do, do you recall the the essay I'm talking I think about? The great error of Jung is interpreting uh, symbols in uh, a psychic manner exactly as in a psychic manner in the sense that all these symbols refer to personalities uh, yeah. he uses the word arch archetype which mm -hmm. he used in a completely different sense than uh, medieval and ancient philosophy used it uh, because you know the, the ancient platonists or medieval uh, philosophers theolo theolo theologians use archetype in the sense of this such a spiritual form you know mm -hmm. but uh, jung <coughs> sorry Young used, used it in this uh, lower case F form, in, a, in the sense of a psychic form, mm -hmm. in the sense of a certain personality. Uh, you have the, the father is a personality, and this, uh, the wise man is a personality. And right. uh, they, he calls it archetypes, but it's not really archetypes, it's pure personalities, pure psychic uh, descriptions. And I think that that's a great error. That's very interesting. Um... Can I DM you about this later? Because uh, that's never really occurred to me before, but um, I think you're onto something there. Um, YM, feel free to jump in at any moment, but here's where we are right now in the podcast. We've been going for almost an hour. Jan, I'm not sure how much time you have. Um, we generally keep these like, <laughs> all right. <laughs> okay, so welcome to the seven hour podcast, everybody. <laughs> until your roommates complain. Excellent. Um, so I want to do a couple of things. I want to address a couple of 
questions we have in the chat. Um, one or two, I'm not sure how serious they are, but uh, I invite questions and therefore if I get questions, I ought to at least address them. And then um, just to give you a heads up, um, Jan, I wanna talk about um, Persephone and the Virgin Mary, all right? All right. Uh, uh, but uh, before we get to those those questions, and don't worry, I'll, I'll set it up a little bit more than that for you, but just so you can get your mind working in that direction. First, let's talk about some of these um, questions. First of all, thank you to everybody who's listening on the live stream. We love having you here. Uh, and I know most of our listeners get us on the RSS. By the way, we love all of you too. Thank you for listening to Right Wing Dharma Squads. Scout had a good question um, quite a while, uh, half an hour ago. He said, what was Guénon's opinion of Agartha? Didn't he write about it in his Le Roi du Monde? Uh, that's the, I think it gets translated as the King Lord of the, of the World. King of the King World. Of the, King of the World. Not Lord of the World. It, um, it's, it's, uh, it depends either on the translation. Yeah, either way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Roi is literally king. king. Um, yeah. I think some translations do it as Lord of the World. But anyway, didn't uh, Guénon write about Agartha in his uh, King of the World? Did he think that all great religions stemmed from one ancient Hyperborean source? Jan? Um, I'll, I'll start with the, the last question. Uh, he did think that uh, in, in the Golden Age, uh, there was just one tradition, uh, which was perfect, you know, the full truth. Uh, everybody uh, lived in uh, harmony with uh, the God and uh, with each other. Um, and he did think uh, this this uh, society or tradition was uh, Hyperborean. For example, he uh, speaks about uh, there was this Hindu man who wrote the book. It's called, I think, the Arctic Home in the Vedas, which uh, which argues that uh, the Hindus came from this northern uh, Hyperborean or Borean. Uh, place and migrated from there because of some great catastrophe. Uh, so yeah, he I, I think uh, as far as I know, he did he, he did think that uh, all uh, traditions uh, descended from this via Atlantis uh, or not. You know, he talks about some traditions have a directly Hyperborean origin, some have an Atlantean origin. Uh, so yeah, he, he did write a bit about it. Yeah, good. Uh, if I can put you on the spot then, uh, what do you think about that question? I don't know. I think uh, I think speculating, I th I'll start with, I find it very interesting just to uh, research, but there's a lot of uh, bullshit about it too. Uh, it's It's very, I think it's very difficult to know history um you know for example like uh, i mean there were, there were some uh, museum curators from medieval museums and they say like well, what 40 50 percent of the artifacts we have are fake you know we don't even know like from yeah. thousands of years ago but what there was so when we speak about thousands of years ago uh, i think it's it's very hard to find uh, uh trustable information um but but i do think uh, just uh in the sense of 
uh, more intellectually that there was uh, in the beginning one tradition. Um, and it seems, I think it's it's probable that it was like a Borean uh, source. So yeah, I do, I do think it's uh, it's probable. Yeah, I I, uh, I would say I would agree. And actually, YM, because I don't know your opinion on this, so I'm going to mm -hmm. ask you the same question in a second, but I'll give my opinion. I actually um, tend to agree with what Jan just said, which is that the exact shape and form, um, the names, you know, names like Agartha, names like Atlantis and stuff, like I, those, I, I don't throw them away because those are the best names we have, you know, passed down by uh, the sources that we do have. And so I think it's very foolish to just, throw those out like oh that's old timey stuff who knows right like no those are the best names we have however a good de deal of skepticism is obviously uh important to have and so i i i'm agnostic on the exact shape that these things took but um to be honest i i i do actually think that something like that took place um and that we just have a very dim view of of exactly what that was. Uh, what do you? Where do you come down on this, uh, Yamnaya? I am also somewhat skeptical of a lot of the more fanciful stories of like Atlantis and Hyperborea. That being said, there is an interesting reference in the Agana Sutta to how human beings emerged from these beings who lived within the uh, Devo realm, within the God realm, who gradually became more and more tied to this plane of existence by virtue of their attachment to certain physical things like consumption of food. And this might actually be somewhat of a, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, is maybe the Abhisvara Deva realm in this case kind of the same thing as Hyperborea? And could this be referring back to that particular tradition? That's a possibility I'm willing to entertain in my head, but. Uh, I don't know if that was a question for Jan or what, but like I personally, YM, I, I do think that, that that is a distinct possibility. Like how, how can we know? But I. I don't think that that's a crazy suggestion. Like on a really raw exoteric level, I mean, there's definitely like a common Indo-European religious similarity that you can see defining all of the traditions, be it like the ones of you know, pagan Europe or or the Vedas or sure. in Vesta. And I mean, this is this is something that's definitely there on like really raw exoteric level. Yeah, and it's there in Christianity too. You know, I think uh, you know uh, on on the right side of Twitter and stuff, you'll see people. Oh, it's this desert religion. It's just you know Judaism for it's Europeans. So but it's so like yeah, European like culture that it's not really starting from the Greek. Um, oh, by the way, Jan, uh, do do you do you know ancient Greek? Because I saw some of your translations of the the New Testament uh, on your website. Well, the New New Testament's not exactly. Uh, Ancient Greek, but uh, yes, I understand. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> so that sounds like a yes to me. <laughs> well, I, I know it a bit. I uh, I went. Uh, my high school was uh, gymnasium. Uh, we studied the uh, ancient languages, uh, Latin and Greek. Right, um, and sorry. What? What? How do you call the Greek uh, at the time of the Bible? I I don't remember, but uh, it's like. Uh, well, Koine or yeah, no. Koine Greek, yeah, yeah, yeah. Koine, yeah. Koine. And then um, I take it you have some French too, because uh, I saw some French translation on there from Guénon. Yeah, it's it's, but it's very rudimentary French. But uh, sure. I, I'm not, I'm better uh, ah. German, not French. But I know a little bit. Uh, and then um, I, I have one more question on translation, and then we'll get back to questions from the listeners. Um, I saw your translation of. Um, first part of the Tao Te Ching, 
I don't, uh, I don't think uh, it's uh, it's based on other translations. Yeah, yeah. So I was curious about because I gathered that from your introductory note that you weren't translating directly from um, classical Chinese. Chinese. <laughs> yeah, uh, neither do I. Um, but um, what was that experience? I'm just uh, I'm a literary guy before I was ever a Buddhist or a or a right winger or whatever. Like my 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 background is <laughs> before I was even a Marxist. <laughs> I'm into books and and um, philology and that kind of thing. And um, I'm just curious what that experience was like for you. You worked just from a couple different uh, Chinese to to English or Chinese to French or German or or what? Uh, Chinese to English mostly. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, I there was this very nice website which uh, which was very useful in comparing different translations. And I was uh, I was reading uh, them all, and there were so many, there were so such great differences between all these translations. Yeah. Um, so mostly, what I did was, uh, from my knowledge of uh, Taoism, I tried to uh, compare them and see which ones uh, I think expressed most clearly uh, Taoist doctrine. Uh, and then, uh, and also drawing on your own sort of intuitive or intellectual yeah, understanding. Well, of mostly like my own uh, way of expression, like the, my the terms I use. Uh, like, okay. for example, I think I uh, chose to translate uh, Tao as God. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I noticed that. You know, I, I could could leave it as Tao. Many translations do so, or translate it as a way. But yeah. I think for like uh, a Western. Christian audience, I think it, it, you can only translate it as God. Uh, Interesting. Uh, again, again for our listeners, um, the website is uh, esotericTraditionalism.wordpress.com. Did I get that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Check it out. It's cool. There's um, if you click on translations on the sidebar, um, Jan's got some uh, his, of his own takes on uh, a couple of chapters from John and the Tao Te Ching, and I'm forgetting what else was on there. Yeah, this uh, French article by Ganon. Oh yeah, the Ganon, the Ganon article. Yeah, in English. Yeah, very good stuff. Very interesting stuff. All right, so the only and thing I, worse, uh, I think please. it was like uh, the question of like the um, the physicality of the of paradise. Like, is it a, a, a Deva realm or? Uh, oh, is that one of the questions? No, I think it, 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 like a few minutes ago, uh, why am? Uh, oh yeah. Like the, the possibility of uh, Hyperborea being like a Deva realm. Yes. Um, like I just wanted to say, like in the I was reading, uh, I've read this uh, work by uh, John uh, Scotus Erigna, uh, Perifision, a ninth century uh, monk, Irish monk, who wrote this uh, this giant uh, five book uh, work. And he also speaks about paradise being like uh, people having spiritual bodies in paradise. And that only after the fall, you know, when they take on the garment made of, uh, I think, fake leaves, that symbolizes like taking on the, the corrupt, uh, corrupt, uh, corruptible flesh. So in that sense, uh, I also think that like the, the, the first paradise the first age the golden age was not uh, like we didn't have the same bodies in sense of corruptible bodies that is a really remarkable parallel between the two 
Oh, because I mean, uh, it, and, and I, I just mean from like, like just to to indicate that it's not like a, a new age belief or something, but it's like a, a, a like a traditional Christian uh, belief. All right. So um, the only thing worse than falling for a troll is um, assuming that a sincere question is a troll and not addressing it. So you guys tell me. Uh, Drekiger Dan asked, I want to hear Jan's opinion on Ken Wheeler as the Kumaraswamy Khalifa. Uh, does that mean anything to you, Jan? Yeah, it's a, it's like a, a Twitter meme. Like, uh, I, I, <laughs> Ken Wheeler? yeah, it's like this, uh, fat, uh, ugly, bald, uh, man on YouTube. He's like 211,000 subscribers. Oh shit! It's, okay. It's like half his videos are about cameras, him like reviewing cameras, uh, and the other half is him just calling people retards and mental midgets because they don't understand his perfect uh, understanding of uh, Platonism or Hindu doctrine or Buddhist. Uh, uh, okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, and what is the what is the Khalifa ref reference? I'm sorry, I don't even well, know. He, he says he says that uh, you know if Ananda Kumaraswamy. Uh, and then his son, Ramakumar Swami, was like a traditional Catholic. Yeah. Uh, that his son gave him, Ken Wheeler, the rights to all of uh, <laughs> Anders' books. <laughs> uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. Uh, but uh, he, he says that it's the case, but uh, I, I don't really believe it. But, you know, it could be possible. Okay, there you go, Dan. There's, uh, there's Jan's opinion on that topic. Um, let's address CS's question here. Interesting comment about the digital, in quotes. Given that there is a finite number of atoms in the universe, seems like there's truth to the simulation theory thing. I know it can be a cringe theory, but still. Uh, and YM, we can address this too from our, our Buddhist perspective. Um, I don't know, Jan, if that sparks anything in you. You, you don't have to comment if you don't want to, but... Well, um, I don't know. I think, um, like, I think at, uh, I published a, a blog post about uh, atomism, um, like uh, two months ago, and um, I don't, know, I, I don't, I don't really know what to do with with, with the question. I like, mean, yeah, maybe, yeah. The, even like the I read your article on atomism, and I mean. What's interesting, though, is like the classical atomic atomist idea of like atoms as being indivisible. Even mat physical materialists don't really subscribe to that. I mean, they're, I mean, modern quantum mechanics admits atoms are completely divisible as well. So well, yeah, that, that's interesting because um, you know there's also this um, yeah almost traditionalist author. His name is uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, I'll, I'll look it up. I'll look it up. Uh, uh, very interesting because he writes that quantum mechanics proves uh, Aristotelian metaphysics. Uh, well, that's interesting. I while you look that up, I'll just say on CS's comment that I I think that it's a category error uh, when people start talking about um, like information as as digits, right? As ones and zeros as bytes of bits of information uh, and then also notice that the world 
in theory could be, and again, YM has already pointed out that quantum mechanics makes this very difficult or perhaps impossible. But even if it were possible, I still think it's a category error to start thinking of the physical world because it's made up of atoms and whatnot and um, particles as, as information. Because I tend to um, agree with the more, uh, I guess, you know, it sounds weird coming from a Buddhist, but the sort of Platonic uh, look, view of things that the corporeal world is just sort of a shadow of, um, of what's happening on the spiritual level. Um, and, th and this actually comports with the theory of karma um, and the wheel of samsara um, and the difference between samsara and nirvana. Um, and one, one way that you can get out of this trap is just ask yourself, what version of physical reality could you think up in your mind that wouldn't fall to this question? Like, this kind of question will always come up no matter how uh, science ends up describing physical reality. So currently, like if we forget relativity, when we forget quantum theory and just talk about like Newtonian mechanics and everything, we, we think, you know, the, the uh, physical body is made up of atoms. It's got protons and neutrons and electrons and so forth. Um, and they're little planets revolving around uh, each other and and that's what makes up physical reality and so you can break those down into ones and zeros in theory um and then describe the world that way okay but what what version of physical reality like what description of physical reality could there possibly be that wouldn't beg this question um God, I, I i'm not very articulate on this um can you guys see what i'm getting at somebody jump in and save me <laughs> i mean the, the, the thing that kind of jumps out to me about the question is um, when we're talking about, you know, physical reality, are we dealing with, I mean, ultimately these are always going to be, when we're talking about what we describe when we perceive physical reality, it's it's the image projected into the mind that's being, work, that the consciousness is actually working with. So, I mean, when we talk about simulation theory, on, on that level, there actually might be something to it. But... Um, Beyond that, I mean, it's not not really much I can say. Yeah, that's say. fine. I mean, if we don't if we don't have a, a an intelligent comment on CS's question, then we'll we can just move on to <laughs> uh, the next thing. Thanks for asking, CN. Uh, CS. Um, um, let's skip that one because CS actually dropped a lot of really good questions. So I'm going to skip to uh, Ben Garrison. Ha 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 ha. Welcome, <laughs> well, welcome, Mr. Garrison. Yeah, the man himself asks, Evelis, can I get a comment on the Dutch people? <laughs> what is their problem, and are they Nephilim? Well, the Dutch people are very tall. You know, I'm uh, 100 and like uh, 195 centimeters. I think that's like 6'5". Uh, yeah, it's quite tall. Um, but yeah, Dutch, uh, Dutch people are just very, uh, very tall. Certain distance, they may be uh, descending from the from the Nephilim, <laughs> the giants. Uh, and what is their problem? The Dutch people is it's, it, we've always been uh, a very mercantile people, yeah, very Protestant, uh, very uh, uh, working capitalist uh, people. So yeah, basically we are very uh, very modern. Yeah, and not to get too um, 
like Jared Diamond on these kinds of things. But, um, you know, I mean, if you look at the, uh, the geography of the Netherlands um, and you put a bunch of very smart Northwest European people in that particular geography, the only way they're ever going to make uh, uh, like a strong country is through mercantilism because it's not a militarily uh, tenable place at all right like there's there's no way to defend uh, the netherlands uh, it's it's open to the sea and it's completely open to the land right but uh, it's also great for trading right like it's an excellent yeah. place yeah. to become traders and so the dutch became excellent traders perhaps the best um, excellent imperialists you know in excellent new imperialists york yeah. Yeah. new york was ours until we saw it it used to be called new amsterdam that's right so new amsterdam you for a uh, surinam i believe I yeah. think it's, uh, I mean, <laughs> good trade. <laughs> yeah. Another thing to note is, I mean, we could say maybe it's the uh, continued Yamnaya lifestyle of consuming vast quantities of dairy products that helps preserve this superior genetics. There you go. Very true. All yeah. right. Uh, let, let's whip through the last few here. Um, and then uh, let's, we can close on this question of Persephone and the Virgin Mary. Um, uh, you know what? I think we got all the ones I wanted to get to, actually. Ah, oh, no. Here, here's here's CS's other question. This is this is a meaty one. I don't know if we'll be able to really answer this, but CS asks: Genon wrote disparagingly of Buddhism in his book on Hindu doctrines. What did he not understand about Buddhism, or was his critique correct? First of all, as a one of the resident Buddhists here, I'll say, I actually haven't read this critique, so I shouldn't speak on it, but um, either YM or Jan, are you familiar with what CS is asking about? My understanding is that Ganon thought that the Buddhist teaching of anatta, that is the non-existence of the self, was fundamentally anti-traditional. And as a result, Buddhism was a fundamentally anti-traditional religion that came out of Hinduism, which was a traditional religion. Um, I understand that in one of his later books on this, uh, later versions of the study of the on the Hindu scriptures, or it might have been another one, uh, Kumaraswamy had actually convinced him, him that at least Mahayana Buddhism was in fact a traditional religion. So he changed his mind at least a little bit. Now, interesting, interesting. Yes, yeah, as, as far as I know, uh, his, his critique, he, he said that Buddhism was a revolt by the Kshatriya caste against the uh, Brahmins. No. Yeah, so simply for that, he, he didn't like it because he was like, Yeah, that makes sense. Brahmins I mean, and it, essentially it, it sort of was. Um, <laughs> so I, you know, from a strictly like um, traditionalist perspective, I can see that. Yeah. No, but that, that, this, this is the same kind of critique. I'm sorry to, to talk bad about the great master Kenon, but this is the same kind of critique when people talk about like, uh, you know, the great flowering of European Christianity is like, you know, dead kike on a stick or what, you know what I mean? This, this yep. kind of, this kind of argument is like, it's it, like, I don't know. It's well, not actually, I mean, Evola came to like the, almost the exact opposite conclusion because his yes. view was that the Kshatriya yeah. caste was higher than the Brahmin caste. And so he thought true. that Buddhism was a restoration of the tradition. Very true. Very true. Um, yeah, but as you said, Gwanam did change his mind a bit under the influence of uh, Kumaraswamy because Kumaraswamy wrote in his book I think it's called Hinduism and Buddhism he, he writes that they teach basically the same thing um, but I think 
Guénon critiqued Buddhism more as a historical movement in the sense of a historical degeneration. In the sense, we we spoke from like history is uh, is uh, uh, is a process of continual devolution, and in this sense, he saw uh, Buddhism as taking part in the uh, regression of the costs. You know, it was from the, the highest yeah. cost to the second uh, highest cost. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he did change his mind a bit uh, on it later. But uh, I actually wouldn't was, argue with that. I, I and, But I would just say that um, Buddhism is more useful, therefore, um, because we we aren't we aren't um, Brahmins. I'm I'm not a Brahmin. Like no. I, I don't have the karma to have been born in that uh, <laughs> in a golden age at, in a golden caste. And so um, if I want access to the Supreme, I need some other vehicle. And uh, Jan, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think that um, a, a serious Catholic would say that the way is through Jesus Christ. Um, and I think that a serious Buddhist would say it, it's not through the Buddha, but through the teachings of the Buddha. It's, a, it's an attempt to access um uh, the ultimate, the spiritual, the divine, um, from our fallen position, I guess is how yeah, I would put it. And I mean, if there's anything that I could say about Hinduism from my reading about it is that it's very difficult to really get a handle on it without having been like brought up within that culture. And that's partially why it seems to have traveled so poorly in comparison to Buddhism. I mean, aside from the Chams of Cambodia and the Balinese, it's basically... Right just a religion among like people from the Indian subcontinent. It's very interesting uh, that you bring it up because Gunan really, you know, he was a big fan of Hinduism. You know, he wrote in, uh, books about it and saw it as a, as a, one of the prime examples or prime expressions of uh, the primordial tradition. Uh, but he, he said, he thought that you couldn't convert to Hinduism. He thought you, you can't become a Hindu. So that's one of the reasons why he chose to live as a Muslim instead of uh, yeah, that you can't, uh, you know, and that's hard to argue with from a certain perspective. You know, it's like you can't become a Greek pagan if you're not a Greek person. Like, you, how could you become a, a Hindu without being Hindu? I, I, I understand I that some people have done that, but I, I tend to side with uh, Ganon on that. I know some Hindu gurus will offer initiation to certain Western practitioners, but then it's like, have you really become a Hindu or have you become a Kashmiri Shaivite or a Gaudiya Vaishnavite? Or one of the Beatles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, oh, sorry, I muted myself. So listen, we have been going for almost an hour and a half. Um, I actually would love to keep talking, but I can hear my inner Dharma Kirti telling me to keep this nice and tight. Um, now DK is going to be like, what? I didn't say anything <laughs> later. But in, in any case, um, I do think that we should wrap it up in the next um, you know, 10 minutes or so. Well, there's no, there's no, there's no timeline, but I do want to um, yeah. wrap it up eventually. And before I do that, um, I would like to say that Jan, you've got some excellent essays on um, the Virgin Mary, um, and also on my particular favorite um, figure from ancient Greek and Roman um, uh, mythology, which is uh, Proserpina or Persephone. Um, and you don't really address them side by side, at least what from, from what I read on your blog. But 
at least in your poetry, you did sort of suggest um, a crossover between the idea of Persephone and the idea of the Virgin Mary. And I know this is asking a big question because um, the way you talk about the Virgin Mary as the gateway between um, the the sublunary world that is sort of the, I guess, the regular world that you could call it, the earthly world, um, and the superlunary world, which is the the heavens or the the ultimately spiritual world. Forgive me if I'm murdering the terms here, but no, um, fine. Yeah, um, Persephone. Um, for our listeners, I think you know probably a lot of you know this myth. Um, maybe some of you don't. Um, Persephone. I'll use the Greek version that I'm familiar with. Um, this is like you know Edith Hamilton version of Persephone. So <laughs> you know I don't know. I'm not a. I'm not learned in in ancient Greek or anything. But the the basic story of Persephone is that she was the daughter of the earth goddess or the the goddess of the harvest, if you will, uh, Demeter, and um, she like as a young virginal teenager, you know, very trad. Uh, she was. <laughs> abducted and, and raped and and forced to become the wife of Hades, the lord of the underworld. Um, so he took this young virginal girl who came from this background of, um, again, her mother was the earth goddess, right? So her mother was about green growing things and the life of the earth, right? Um, and uh, there's a bunch of different parts of the story going up to Zeus and everything. Um, but the, the, the essence of the story is that um, Persephone was allowed to live um, with her mother on earth, if you will, on the surface of the earth for nine months out of the year. Um, and for three months of the year, uh, she was forced to go back down and become the bride of, of Hades. Um, and it's said that as the bride of Hades, uh, again, the Lord of the underworld, the Lord of the dead, she was the most terrifyingly beautiful uh, goddess of them all, like even more than, than uh, Aphrodite. Um, and, and she, she was so beautiful. It was, you couldn't even look upon her. Um, and then as the springtime goddess, when she returns to the regular world, she's like this carefree girl who just brings life and springtime and flowers and buzzing bees and birds and everything. Um, and I, I find that, that sort of dichotomy of not, not to get too, you know, 20th century psychology about it, but that dichotomy of the female figure to be very interesting, um, and very compelling. And I think it speaks to a, a deep truth. And I'm just curious if you view Persephone in the same way. And then how do you, you being Jan, um, and then how do you relate that to the to the idea of the Virgin Mary? And I'm sorry if I just asked a huge mouthful, but <laughs> if you could at least say a few words on that. No, I'm actually uh, very glad you asked me this question because um, I, I did a lot of research on this topic. Uh, as you said, um, I don't know if it was before the show or in the show, but you, you told me, uh, I wrote this blog, page, blog post. Uh, it's called On the uh, Materia Prima and the uh, yeah, Chedi or something like that, on the, on the Prime Matter and the Gate of Heaven. And it's uh, or on, on the relationship between those. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, I saw something in chat. But, uh, um, <laughs> that's all right <laughs> go ahead so yeah I, I, I've, I've looked really into it and uh, I think to start with um, I'd like to talk about uh, Pythagorean or uh, uh, Platonic uh, view of the, the rape of uh, Persephone uh, 
it is interpreted that the rape of Persephone signifies the generation or manifestation of the sensible world. Uh, they, they viewed the, the underworld, uh, Lord Hades, uh, as, as king of the underworld. They saw that they interpreted that to mean the sensible world, the phenomenal world, the sublunar world. Uh, so this rape of Persephone would signify uh, the descent uh, or manifestation of the sensible world. And in this sense, uh, Persephone plays a role as mother uh, or source, origin of the sensible world. Because, because of her rape, her uh, abduction uh, caused it. Uh, and this, and she is, she's also, you know, queen or princess of the underworld of the sensible world, which is a name also given to uh, Virgin Mary. And also uh, in the in the blog post, I also mention uh, Fortuna, Lady Fortune, uh, who was also given this title. Um, yeah, I guess uh, we could say they all signify in the sense the the, the prime matter uh, the 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 source of all manifestation uh, in in more or less specific terms persephone is and the rape persephone is specific uh, specifically refers to this manifestation of the sensible world which is not uh, directly from the uh, prime uh, matter, but more from the Oh, ether, the uh, uh -huh. akasha, the, the you call it, right? Uh -huh, uh -huh. Yeah, so it, it's it's more a symbol for the akasha, but akasha is like uh, it it serves the function of the prime matter to the sensible world. So in this sense, it, it's the same symbolism, I think. Um, so the so the it represents like um, the rupture that allows. Um, you know, people ask, "Why is there anything as opposed to nothing at all?" Right? It's this. It's this break. Um, yeah, yeah. It's 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 the it's the it's and it, said it's the fall. It's it's the 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 expulsion from the spiritual domain to the sensible material domain. Yeah, like the the grain of sand in the, the grain of grain of sand in the oyster that. Uh, creates the the world that we see yeah 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 wow yeah yeah to, uh, address this, Th this has parallels in um in in uh vedic thought too actually um but i i'm not familiar enough with the terms right now to to talk about it so um i want to dm you about this <laughs> i'm very interested about it i just want to uh, point to this comment by uh, cs he said this material is covered in Shalani's book, The Black Virgin, and uh, it's it's true. It's a very good book, also on this topic. I uh, I very much uh, endorse it. Okay, great. Yeah. So for our listeners uh, who aren't watching right now, that's Jean-Ani. Uh, that's H A N I. It's his last name, and the book is called The Black Virgin. Thank you, CS, for pointing that out. Don't don't Google Black Virgin, by the way. Don't Google it. Uh... <laughs> don't image search. Black yeah, Virgin. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, talking about the grain of sand and the oyster. All right, so um, <laughs> let's wrap it up, guys. Uh, 
Uh, Jan, I think we should have you on again sometime if you if you'd be willing to do that. Sure, I really uh, really enjoyed it. Good, good. I'm glad. I I, know, I think our, our friends who couldn't be here today um, would would I'm sure they'd love to talk to you about some stuff too. We didn't actually get that deep uh, into any Buddhist topics at all, but I think that's totally fine. Um, all of this stuff touches on on all the rest of it. Um, why am not to put you on the spot? Was there anything that you wanted to say or questions you wanted to ask before I wrap things up? Uh, no, I mean that's I didn't really have anything else to add there. It's uh, it isn't no. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> yeah, not really anything else I could add here. All right. Thanks, buddy. Um, great. So, Jan, uh, thank you very much for being here today. Um, again, everybody can follow him. Um, Jan, you want to spell out your Twitter handle for people? Uh, yes, it's at uh, Schneider Jan. It's M-A-A-N-S-N-I-J-D-E-R-J-A-N. And uh, your uh, website again is? EsotericTraditionalism.wordpress.com Cool, cool. Uh, so thanks everybody for listening today. Uh, I'd like to do a little bit of dedication of merit um, for anybody who got benefit from this, um, who gets uh, better practice in their spiritual life, um, uh, better karma from this. I want to dedicate it to two very good friends who are both knee deep in very hard work right now um two totally different kinds of work but those guys are storm king and dharma kirti and uh i know you guys are probably wincing right now like no no don't dedicate merit to me but it's too late you already got it buddy uh we're thinking of you guys um so we wish you were here right now i want to thank everybody in the live chat for um great questions and just for listening and uh chiming in and i want to thank everybody who listens on the rss so that's it for this week. Uh, again, I'm Aura. This has been Right Wing Dharma Squads, episode 36, and we will catch you next time. <laughs> <laughs>